Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you all very much for tuning in wherever you are around the world. And as usual, we've got a lot to cram in. Coming up, some brilliant questions on a whole range of urgently topical issues uh, and a bit of reflections on me about something which will come to any second. Before that, just a reminder, a bit of history about to take place in a few days' time. The live show streamed from my boudoir is probably, hopefully, going to be the last because everything's opening up in June, isn't it? We hope, fingers crossed. So, on May the 12th, there is a historic live stream via the King's Place website from a boudoir in my house, Rock and Roll Politics Live. I'll be reflecting on the post-election landscape, these big elections coming up this week. Uh, Where does it leave Johnson and the Tories? Labour and Starmer, the SNP, the future of Scotland, and much more besides. Uh, And of course, there will be the continuing theme of Johnson, his number 10, which I think is a sort of understated element of this, the degree to which allegations of sleaze destabilise an office. Uh, And this is a weird number 10, I'm going to explain in more detail why. There will be your live questions, unreliable predictions, and as I say, tickets, get them now. Those of you who haven't joined in in the past, see what it was all about in lockdown, how we all kept going um, in spite of all the constraints. And then in June, there will be a live show at King's Place. You can get those tickets too. Uh, But it will also be streamed. For those of you who can't get to London, if you live in Europe, America, anyone in Britain, you can come and join us live. Yeah, we can have a few drinks at the end like old times. Um, Those are available live, but it'll also be streamed. So that's coming up this, uh, well, Wednesday, the May the 12th, and then June is the live one. If it's okay with you, I'm going to reflect a bit. I'm not going to do more. We did quite a lot on sleaze last week in inverted commas. So I'm going to reflect on three different things which I think come together and reveal quite a lot, really. One was a column by Matthew Paris in The Times on Saturday, which some of you might have read, uh, some of you might still be able to read, in which he talked about the need for a new centre force a new centre party or one of the parties to appeal to centrists in which he clearly includes himself. Another revealing element, I think, is the Joe Biden speech, uh, which he made last week, in which he outlined the details of a massive fiscal stimulus and the reasons behind it. And the third is the understated agenda of Johnson away from all the Brexit and sleaze stuff, uh, which, of course, we've discussed many times here before, but it's it's connected. Um, Now, the reason why the Paris article was interesting is because he writes so elegantly and with a tone which is rather gentle, and because he was so sensible uh, from the perspective of Remainers like me on Europe, 
and because he recognised long ago that Boris Johnson was a rogue and a dangerous rogue. You kind of pick up his column and think, oh, I'm going to be drawn into a blissful, elegantly written argument, which I will also associate with. But actually, uh, Matthew is, in many ways, in economic matters, a Thatcherite. He is an economic and social liberal. And that economic and social liberalism has been regarded for a very long time in Britain as being on the centre ground. I mentioned before, I think, a Radio 4 documentary on what had happened to the centre ground after Brexit and so on. And they had guests on like George Osborne, Tony Blair, and there was no question of their claim to be on the centre ground. They were just given the space to analyse what had gone wrong. But George Osborne is also a social and economic liberal. Tony Blair is, to some extent. And their claim for that to be the centre ground is, I think, deeply, deeply contentious. It might have been in 1995, 1996, and onwards for a bit longer. Um, and even then, I think, it, to argue that was centrism is... Uh, why? Why is that the centre ground? And... Matthew argued in his column that the reason, for example, the Liberal Democrats were nowhere at the moment, even though they might be able to claim the centre ground, is because they had turned their backs on Orange Book liberalism, which he approved of. Now, the Orange Book liberalism was in some ways overtly uh, Thatcherite. David Laws, one of the great excited figures behind the Orange Book liberalism, uh, said, why is it that our economic liberalism is understated, uh, that we are closer in some ways to the Thatcherite economic approach than social democracy? And so that is Matthew's explanation as to why they are failing. In other words, that they are not right-wing enough, which he thinks places them on the centre ground. And this goes to show how imprecise the so-called centre ground is. Is it really orange book liberalism, Osborne economics, Thatcherism? I don't think so. Uh, you can put a case, I could argue a case now, I wouldn't agree with it, but I could certainly put a case for economic liberalism. But I wouldn't claim it to be on the centre ground. There's a sort of arrogance about those who espouse economic liberalism. They assume it speaks for the great majority who yearn for a reassuring centrist position. But actually, even if the great majority do, that isn't it. Uh, Matthew then went on to explain why other centrist projects had failed. Change UK, he said, well, that was because they were Remainers, and there was a great divide in Britain, and therefore they couldn't take off. That wasn't the reason. There was a huge appetite, many of us shared it, for a pro European party. The reason it didn't take off was it was utterly shallow. And in a way, the shallowness was hidden for a few days when Change UK launched a great enthusiasm at the BBC and elsewhere. The BBC tend to regard those who claim to be centrist as a kind of almost like a form of impartiality. But actually it was utterly shallow. What did Change UK stand for? Uh, Anna Soubry, who was uh, one of the leading Tories in Change UK, 
passionately supported at her launch for the Tory wing of Change UK, uh, the Osborne economics of the early phase of the coalition and continuing through. Was that what Change UK stood for? If not, what? wasn't at all clear what uh, Chukarumana stood for, apart from his support for the European Union and Remain. So there were much deeper reasons why Change UK fell apart so quickly. And there are deeper reasons. We've discussed it, I think, on this programme, and I wrote an article recently for the New European about it, about the Liberal Democrats and the kind of ongoing identity crisis between those who espouse that economic liberalism that Matthew regards wrongly as being on the centre ground, and um, those who are social democrats like Charles Kennedy, who loathed the coalition was, David Steele is, um, and you can go back to Lloyd George and all that tradition, uh, where they actually see the state as a benevolent force, not a threat to economic liberalism. So while that identity crisis is in place, it's quite hard for the Liberal Democrats to get a, a firm grounding in this current very febrile political mood where each party, in a way, is undergoing identity crises for different reasons. And as proof as to how vague this term centrist is and how overused and misused. Look at Joe Biden's speech last week. Now here, everyone, you know, in Britain, the self-proclaimed centrist columnists, oh, you know, Biden, safe pair of hands, he's a centrist, that's what we need, and this shows centrism is back in fashion when Biden was elected. And here he is being a social democrat Keynesian radical. And here is the twist. He always has been. And the speech he made last week was, I think, it must have been deeply fulfilling for him to have the power to finally realise what he has always believed in the benevolent potential of the state, in the validity of Keynesian economics, that spending can generate growth and in the growth of the economy uh, you can address issues like deficits and the demand for better public services and all the rest of it. And he went at it on quite a big scale. It shocked those who see themselves as centrists here because they don't really approve of this kind of thing. They are economic liberals who believe that George Osborne was on the centre ground when he was cutting public spending in real terms as a response to the financial crash in 2008. And so those centrists must be a bit bewildered. Where is their centre ground if their hero Biden, the centrist Biden, is putting an argument for big public spending? And then you look at the theoretical agenda of the government and Johnson, levelling up, bringing back those who were left behind, putting the case openly that borrowing more can lead to economic growth. Now, I know many of you don't believe they believe it, and many don't. It's quite clear from the background of most of the Cabinet that they are and remain small state Thatcherites. 
and that is almost certainly the position of Rishi Sunak himself. But that is the government's agenda because for now, perhaps for not much longer, Johnson and his number 10 via Dominic Cummings, how bizarre to think about that, were the overwhelming forces determining government responses, combined, of course, with the pandemic, which meant all kind of ideological purity about a small state was inevitably thrown out of the window. But that's not the sole reason why the government is like this. A combination of Johnson's kind of rootless flexibility, the winning of so many of those former Labour seats in the north of England, um, and a bit of Johnson, as far as there is any consistency within him, uh, there's a bit of him that has a kind of Keynesian streak, albeit in a kind of rather self-aggrandizing way. You know, he, he kind of likes the idea of Boris bikes and Boris bridges and so on. But there is a Keynesian streak in him. Means that, obviously not in a Biden-esque way, but in a way that implies moving towards Biden, you have a government that is seen as a right-wing government, actually pursuing policies, at least in terms of aspiration and language, much more closely associated with the left of centre. So where does this leave us? I think for all the noise around Johnson's alleged rule-breaking, flat refurbishment stuff, whether Starmer's up to it and independence for Scotland and all the rest of it. There is going on a sea change which um, those who have espoused economic and social liberalism haven't remotely caught up with. Uh, it was interesting reading, talking about columns, there was another one by uh, Robert Colville in the Sunday Times and he said, I, look, I'm a Thatcherite and I feel a bit left behind at the moment. And that is because I think he is being left behind. That era where in uh, Britain and America social and economic liberalism was utterly dominant has passed. And there's another interesting illustration of this uh, which was, I really recommend you watch it, it was, very, it was a really good discussion. Norman Fowler, the departing speaker in the House of Lords, has been holding these Zoom sessions with various heavyweights from the House of Lords. And the most recent was between uh, Ken Clark and Peter Mandelson. And here are two really interesting, very open people these days. And with a curiosity about their own lives, political lives, um, which is admirable. They, you know, there isn't a total kind of dogmatic assertiveness. Oh, we're just right, right, right. And there was a moment which I found fascinating where Peter Mandelson said to Ken Clark, do you think we got public service reform wrong? Or something to that effect. Were we right about public service reform? Implying some doubt. And I thought that was interesting, that Mandelson was at least contemplating the idea that in this new sea change that is taking place in politics, 
their assumptions and he you see he, he brought together the sort of ken clark margaret thatcher reforms with the new labor reforms were we right or wrong about public service reform um he is at least having some doubt now this was regarded as the great test in the latter part of the new labor era gordon brown who forensically challenged some of the public service reforms was dismissed as being you know anti-reform and old labor so it was the totemic test did you back the continuation of the ken clark thatcher reforms under blair and alan milburn and and others uh, or were you in inverted commas anti-reform and now peter mandelson one of the pioneers of that wing of new labor wonders and he wonders in a precise context some of the nhs reforms those that led we've discussed it here many times to the atomization of uh, health provision uh, the fracturing of some of the clear lines of accountability are being reversed by this government not a labor government uh, and that has led peter mandelson to wonder whether they've got it wrong ken clark acknowledged they got some of it wrong he said uh, you know the government was trying to address issues which he had failed to do but it's deeper than that those reforms carried out to empower patients on the whole not wholly but to some extent disempowered patients those reforms carried out to be efficient and save money cost money because there were so many mediating agencies uh, but above all it led to blurred lines of responsibility and accountability. And in a wake when um, Simon Stevens has announced he's leaving NHS England, it is worth reflecting that at those famous Downing Street press briefings during the, the sort of peak of the coronavirus, they're still going on, of course, you never saw a Downing Street briefing with the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, and the NHS England chief, Sir Simon Stevens, for the simple reason that when the questions were being asked, it would be unclear who should answer. Because the who is in charge, Matt Hancock or Simon Stevens, bit of both, if so, how do they divide it up, and so on. And clearly, the government is going to take greater control. Now, some people worry about this, um, and with good cause, because governments can uh, make terrible mistakes and act in ways that are for the wrong reasons but i support it because in the end if the government's going to raise the money to pay for the nhs and if it is ultimately accountable for the state of the nhs it needs to have the responsibilities that go with those forms of accountability you can't be responsible that not be able to act on it because all the control has been devolved elsewhere to unelected figures like uh, simon stevens or whatever but it is a really interesting reversal and it is occurring as assumptions about economic policy change too so whatever happens this Thursday in the elections, and say we'll be analysing on the live show and no doubt on all kinds of other outlets in the days and weeks to come, follow the deeper sea change. You know, when you look back at the election of Cameron and Osborne hailed as modernising 
centrists and pursuing that sort of economic and social liberalism. The social liberalism leading a lot of commentators and BBC supposedly impartial reporters to believe that therefore they were centrist and modernising. Ignores that economic liberalism, while sounding rather noble and heroic, is actually a description of Thatcherism in its purest form. Now, of course, there are many nuances, but that isn't the centre ground. It never was, and it certainly isn't now. So when you hear people saying, brilliant people like Matthew Paris, Tony Blair and others, we are on the centre ground, probe. What does that mean? They all said Joe Biden was on the centre ground. But they have never been fans of the kind of stimulus that Biden has been providing. So has he vacated the centre ground? Or were they on a centre ground which wasn't actually the centre at all? And when people say about this government, this deeply flawed government, it's been a terrible swing to the right, that too needs probing. Because in economic uh, policy, in terms of language used, I admit, who knows how it's going to turn out in policy implementation. But in terms of arguments deployed, Johnson claiming to be a fan of Roosevelt and the New Deal and the virtues of government intervention and spending. This is a government, or even though in many ways it's a sort of ugly manifestation of a kind of certain type of English deluded nationalism, it has moved to the left in ways that mark a massive leap from the assumptions of the recent past. Now, I don't mean by that that it necessarily will be in practice. And the more I think about it, that speech, I think it was in uh, July of last year where Johnson went somewhere, it was hugely briefed in advance, all the political editors went up to announce that he was going to be the advocate of Roosevelt spending you know, as part of this whole levelling up. Thing. Now, as Bill Keegan wrote in his Observer column on Sunday, sorry to quote all these columnists in my spiel with you today, but it is interesting. Robert Choate, who used to be at the Office for Budget Responsibility, had pointed out to Bill that he's identified they're actually cutting public spending more than they have even announced. So probably none of this is going to happen. But to hail Rooseveltian public spending, um, if you don't deliver on it, actually, you land in quite a lot of trouble because you have raised hopes of your new target electorate as you have with levelling up. If levelling up becomes, you know, the treasury, a bit of the treasury moving to Darlington and these absurd free ports where you just kind of transfer activity from one place to another, uh, often in a diminished form, that won't do it. They either have to do more or provide space for the main opposition party, which supposedly, genuinely believes in this stuff. Anyway, follow the sea changes in politics. I think it's very interesting. The Biden stuff, by the way, has gone down well in opinion polls. And incidentally, Trump was never a sort of uh, economic liberal Republican. He was always putting the case for high public spending. Didn't carry it out. I mean, he didn't know how to govern. But um, 
these are there are deeper tides and i think those social and economic liberals are way behind the currents and still think they are somehow in some magical center terrain which they never were even when they were fashionable what that wasn't center ground stuff it was elsewhere on the political spectrum anyway there's some reflections i know a huge amount is going on you know about johnson and all the rest of it we did that last week so i thought i'd delve a bit deeper this week and we got those epic elections to come on thursday but before those elections another massively significant event your questions and we've got the first question from jamie mcmillan who suggests how about getting oh he listens by the way to the podcast while giving my indoor orchids their weekly feed and tepid water spray lots of flowering at the moment so they must enjoy it well i've got this image now of oh someone's t- uh, texted me at the same time um yeah okay uh, jamie not about your orchids don't worry what a beautiful image and as he is spraying his orchids uh, jamie's come up with an idea of an english parliament as part of a sort of federal uk i guess in which uh, PR is introduced into an English parliament like we have with the Scottish parliament. And that way, uh, Labour isn't always doomed or the non-Tory forces aren't always doomed in England. As ever, I think we are leaping so many hurdles there, Jamie, although you can see how the sequence happens um, in an attempt, you know, you get create a federal UK in an attempt to sort of end Scottish independence and so on. But But let's see. I'm still wary, I know many of you are not, about making a change to the voting system central to certainly Labour's courts. On this, uh, I think, you know, I was saying earlier about Tony Blair and the centre ground being a sort of vague proposition, but he, he was very sharp, I used to think, on electoral reform, which he used to say, this was in the build-up to 97, where he was sort of pretending to be quite keen on electoral reform because of his relationship with Paddy Ashton, but he always used to also say, um, a cha- proposing a change to the voting system is uh, a rather weak excuse because you can't win. So you can't get the party in the right place to win, so you propose a change of voting system instead. And that's why I'm kind of suspicious. If Labour want to win, they need to get their act together uh, rather than the change in the voting system. But I can see, you know, obviously I can see the arguments for it, given the tendency of the current voting system to bring about one Tory government after another, close to one party rule if they win for the a fifth time this time. Uh, Gillian Oliver wonders, she, she listened uh, with interest when I and others uh, were casting about for a Labour leader that might have won in 2015 and 2017. She wonders about Harriet Harman. Now, it's interesting, Gillian, because I'm, I'm writing a book uh, uh, at the moment about prime ministers we never had, and I was debating about whether to include Harriet Harman. But the truth is, Harriet Harman never stood for a, a leadership contest, as in the leader. She stood famously for the deputy leadership and won. So she didn't stand in 2015. And therefore, you know... These, you know, what what if X would have been any good? Well, if they had, I think, felt leaderly and were perceived as leaderly, they would have stood in a leadership contest. 
Um, but there we go. She, she, you're right. I mean, Gillian mentions there's a slight kind of regret. Harriet Harman in interviews thinking maybe I should have stood in 2015. I'd, she said, well, you know, why didn't I? You know, or indeed um, 2010 uh, when she had been deputy leader of the party. Gordon Brown didn't make a deputy prime minister, which she was also very cross about. Okay, let's now move on. Another sort of Shirley Williams related question, because the Harriet Harman one was partly in connection with Shirley Williams and her, uh, she didn't stand for a leadership contest either. Philip Rowe says, oh, love your podcast. Look forward to it arriving each week. Thank you very much, Philip. That's really great. Since moving to Buxton, the eternal town, who needs Rome? Or for that matter, Portugal. Well, we've got plenty of people living in idyllic Portugal listening to this podcast. And he's been most, have been most listening to you whilst decorating the house. So not quite as glamorous as some of the activities in Portugal, never mind. And contemplating the relative virtues of masking tape. Well, I'm thrilled, Philip, if it stimulated you to that point where masking tape is... Um, a major thing on your mind. Anyway, there are other things on Philip's mind, which includes, with the passing of Shirley Williams, a figure with tremendous gravitas, who received decidedly less than the blanket coverage than the Duke of Edinburgh enjoyed, have been wondering what is needed to receive cut-through as a figure in a smaller party, or achieve success if you have an agenda or ideology. Or does our electoral system and the media make it impossible? unless you're a populist like Boris or Farage. No, not at all, uh, Philip. You know, the, there are people who have emerged who, uh, you know, no one gets the blanket coverage of, of the royals because that's just the way we are as a country and the BBC and all the rest of it. But no, you don't have to be a populist to uh, surface in British politics. And Shirley Williams, I mean, she, she ended up in a smaller party, but she was a big figure in the Labour Party in the 70s, uh, and, and at times the most popular. And as I think I mentioned, Harold Wilson as Prime Minister, who was quite a sharp judge of this, saw her as a potential uh, Labour leader and Prime Minister. So you don't have to go down that route to get some kind of reception when you die. But not that we should all be reflecting on just that side of politics. Um, but thank you very much and uh, good luck with the masking tape Philip enjoy Buxton lovely place to be uh, Stephen Townsley writes I think there are a large number of voters who think all politicians oh yeah I mentioned this, are corrupt and self-serving uh, Boris Johnson is just one of them from that viewpoint there are some voters who think that he is acting immorally or maybe even illegally the British system of an unwritten constitution has relied on decent people doing the moral thing uh, when you have this kind of leadership, there is a certain academic detachment about wondering if the British system of government can survive a vacuum of integrity, to quote the former MP Dominic Grieve. Uh, yeah, it was Dominic Grieve. I think I attributed it to somebody else last week. It was, of course, Dominic uh, Grieve. Um, the, the system will easily survive it, actually. And there is always a tendency, even, believe it or not, with Boris Johnson, to exaggerate the degree of sleaze infecting British politics. It's remarkable the number of prime ministers who've left with sleaze breathing down their necks. Um, and, you know, Major, Blair, Wilson, 
Macmillan, remember Profumo and all of that was seen as symbolizing the end of that era. So and and yet they you know Major was a model of tortured integrity compared with Johnson. And you know, the, calling Blair a war criminal, that nonsense about cash for honours. Do you remember Yates of the Yard pursuing him as if he was a great hero when the Crown Prosecution Service found there was absolutely nothing in which any of them could be got on? And even with Johnson, at least we know voters can decide for themselves, but the level of scrutiny is such that even if, conveniently for him, he doesn't talk publicly about his personal life, even when it becomes mingled with his public role. We know what has been going on, and it's quite obvious, frankly. And it's for voters to decide. And they, you know, and, and, and if voters turn against him and the governing party, the governing party will kick him out. His protective shield at the moment is not indifference about his uh, lack of a moral uh, compass, uh, uh, the integrity vacuum. It is that he's in the lead in the polls, and that is his protective shield. Uh, Vicky Chapman asks, uh, thinking about the EU and Northern Ireland, do you think that the government is assuming that the EU will just have to put up with the UK government's decision to unilaterally relax rules in trade between GB and and Northern Ireland, because the only other option is a border within Ireland, and therefore the EU is caught between a rock and a hard place. I don't know how this is going to be resolved, uh, Vicky, because it's not clear that there is any scope for resolution. And you're right that they will do anything, the EU, and indeed presumably the British government, even this British government, to avoid a border within Ireland, the thing that of course was tormenting Theresa May when she agreed to the backstop. And yet, no, I don't think the EU will accept Britain acting unilaterally when this now is the barrier into the single market, in effect, you know, Ireland. And so I think the negotiations will be tense, will continue, and without obvious resolution. And what's happening in Northern Ireland, you know, we've got now DUP leadership contest and uh, a Brexit deal that, frankly, duped the DUP and Northern Ireland business leaders and all the rest of it. In a way, his worst lie, Johnson's, was about no, no nothing, no barriers in Northern Ireland, nothing at all, nothing, at all, nothing to worry about. And here is the barrier, uh, wholly unavoidable and inevitable from his own withdrawal agreement. But no, I don't think they'll just concede and allow everything to just sort of carry on um, free-flowing because they are obsessed with the purity of that single market. Now, when we were talking about Shirley Williams, we got onto Barbara Castle as well, kind of. And Mike Reese writes, he says that, um, yeah, he met up with uh, Barbara Castle. In 1976, I was a history student at Aberystwyth, and during that hot summer, it was that famously hot summer, along with four other university friends, we travelled Europe with our rail tickets. Anyway, they ended up in Munich, and uh, there they were, having a few drinks, when they realised that sitting nearby was the recently sacked 
Secretary of State for Health, Barbara Castle. Being a sociable individual, she called us over. Oh, well, that's a, that's a good way around. She wanted to speak to you and introduced her, us to her party, including her husband, Ted. What a night it was. Much beer drunk and many stories, especially good were those told by Barbara Castle. We learned how Jim Callahan had sacked her on the grounds of age, even though he was older. The surprising news that she had a high regard for her deputy, David Owen, and many Nye Bevan stories. Well, what a great meeting. Um, and yeah, she, she was a character. She was a big, big figure. And as I think had a kind of rooted political philosophy as well. Um, I won't tell you now whether she qualifies for my book in The Prime Ministers We Never Had, but I will be talking about it quite soon. But I'm pleased you, yeah. I, well, the couple of times I met her, she, she just made me laugh about anything else. She was, she had a mischievous sense of humour. Humour helps. But I wasn't a fan of Keir Starmer going to John Lewis for a laugh because that played into the idea that this whole sleaze business is a bit of a joke, you know, and stunts and so on. Um, but anyway, some people told me I got that wrong. I don't, I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. Geraldine Henley says, Hi Steve, I've never seen Boris as scared as he was at PMQs last week. Uh, sounds like the Electoral Commission has a lot of weight. If Cummings has a tape about piled up body, surely he's finished. I, I wonder whether, would you be recording in number 10 at just that moment? I'm not sure, we'll soon find out. I think increasingly that there is a case for a broad left alliance led by Keir, or it looks as if the left could be in the wilderness forever. Well, Geraldine, a lot of people, we've had others along similar lines today, uh, email in that way. All I ask is how? Explain how it comes about in this kind of context of opposition, where you have to move towards a general election if your Labour claim to be an alternative government. I don't see how it comes about. Um, but anyway, let's, um, let's see what happens uh, in the coming years. But uh, many of you are really keen on this. And it happens, by the way, less so in 97 because Blair was already close to Ashdown and it was obvious Labour were going to win big. But, God, in the build-up to 92 and to some extent 87, should all the parties get together to stop the Thatcher government? Endless talk about it. It never happened. And indeed, just the SDP and Liberals working together uh, was very difficult for both of them. You know, it didn't, it didn't last that long. But thank you very much. I mean, it is a running theme. And if any of you can explain the mechanisms that get there, uh, you know, fine. I, I can't see it. I just can't see it. Noah Keats writes, he said, this is quite interesting about the role of political columnists. I'm an aspiring journalist and I'm interested in your previous position as chief political commentator of The Independent. Your podcast has often astutely discussed the role of the political media in framing arguments, and so I'm curious to learn what factors frame the issues you discussed in your columns. Similarly, I'd be fascinated to learn how the impact and influence of political columnists in the main broadsheets has altered, if at all, over the last two decades. The role of political columnists is really interesting. 
There's no doubt uh, before the sort of expansion of the political columns, so now there are sort of hundreds of columnists, whether they do it in blogs or, you know, online in some sort of social kind of media type newspaper or the printed version. Uh, there are hundreds of them. Up until about, I don't know, the late 80s, early 90s, there were really only four or five political columnists. And they were hugely influential. Uh, you know, governments ached to get the approval of Peter Jenkins, Alan Watkins, Peregrine Warsthorpe, people like the, the these figures were bigger than most cabinet ministers. Even now, that is to some extent the case. You know, I remember people like Ed Miliband really would have loved to have got just the odd positive comment from a Times columnist because he knew rightly that, as I said earlier, you know, the BBC have a weird, weird view of centrism and they kind of saw the Times a bit like them and saw the columnists as centrists and they all slaughtered Ed Miliband, every single one. And I don't think they'd have been published if they had praised him, but he would have loved it and it would have had an influence because it would have stood out. And even though few read columns, they do have an impact on politicians and therefore on the way leaders are perceived. Uh, so they continue to have an influence. In terms of choice of subject, I was always very keen to kind of treat leaders in a kind of really three-dimensional way. So, you know, my colleague at the event, John Rental, slaughtered uh, Gordon Brown, slaughtered Ed Miliband, uh, endorsed Cameron at the elections. And, and bought, in my view, uh, far too generously a view of Cameron. Whereas I tended to see Brown and Miliband as figures much deeper than Cameron. So I kind of, I like to challenge orthodoxies, but only if I believe they were right to be challenged, as I am doing now with this perception of the centre ground. But I was also deeply unfashionable in that whenever a kind of slee story broke, I tended to see it as pretty insignificant. Even defended George Osborne. There was a frenzy when George Osborne was shadow chancellor early on that he had some drink with Peter Mandelson on a Greek tycoon's boat. I can't even remember what it was about, but loads were saying Osborne's got to go. Osborne, who was, who was a very sensitive and quite fragile figure in some ways, thought he might have to go. I remember writing a column saying, absolutely, this is not the reason why George Osborne should have to go. You have to have discussions with comment editors, and that can be very difficult, depending on who the comment editor is and the stance of a paper. So it's kind of multi-layered, actually, political uh, columns and political columnists. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a great thing to do. I left the BBC to write columns. I was a BBC political correspondent and started writing columns while at the BBC, but in the end you can't do it, really, because you do have to express views which take you beyond impartiality and objectivity. Impartiality is easy, and there are things you can do within the framework of impartiality. You can contextualise, and you can dig deep in terms of factual information, but you can't write columns which shine light without expressing views. And so in the end, I, I, I left to write columns. 
and my colleagues at Westminster at the time were Hugh Edwards, Jeremy Vine, John Sopel. So you can see the routes taken have been somewhat different. But I honestly, I haven't regretted it for a second, um, stopping being a political correspondent to do other things. And finally from, oh yeah, that's another one. Another one, Chris Butt says, what about an anti-Tory coalition? He says, you, uh, this is Chris Buck saying, you said this week that the flaw in the anti-Tory coalition theory is that Starmer would have to admit that he couldn't win without it. Yeah, I think that Starmer could be persuaded to do this as Labour would find it almost impossible to form a Westminster government without making significant gains in Scotland, which doesn't seem likely anytime soon. However, under a PR system, Labour would regain a significant number of seats north of the border. Trouble is, they won't get a PR system until they're in power. Um, and even then, uh, would it get the majority backing of the Labour Party? It's, 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 these are circuitous routes. But if the Conservatives win again under first-past-the-post for a fifth successive time, this story will erupt. It was very, very intense, by the way in the Labour Party after the 1992 election. I remember Jeff Rooker, a Labour MP now in the House of Lords, saying to me, if John Smith doesn't grant a referendum on electoral reform, there's going to be blood on the carpet. It's the only way we're ever going to get back into power. It's right in principle. There was real intense. So Blair inherited the policy about a referendum on electoral reform. It helped him form a bond with Paddy Ashdown, uh, but it was already a policy which John Smith adopted very reluctantly. He wasn't a fan of it, nor was Tony Blair, as I said earlier. But he did it because he had to, because there was this demand in Labour. And that will come if Labour lose again. But there is always in politics, politics is largely disappointing uh, for people pursuing it, especially if you're not on the winning side, which is the conservative side in England. But it always offers hope. And, you know, if you're Starmer, you still hope you can win on your own, I think. But that might change in the coming months as well. Finally, from uh, Jeff Strange. Hi, Steve. Hope all is well. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's enjoying uh, various uh, books of mine now on sale inside the bookshops, which are open. Yeah. I just saw uh, some of my books at Waterstones on Prime Ministers. A great thrill because the paperback version updated with a chapter on Johnson and so on. Um, the bookshops were closed, I think, when it came up, but they're now there. Yeah. Anyway, Jeff wonders whether a variety of forces. Uh, could lead to a united Ireland fairly quickly. The situation in Scotland, economic forces uh, driving people towards contemplating a united Ireland, and even issues such as Boris Johnson's limited attention span would might see him jettison Northern Ireland as it gets all too complicated. It is going to get really, really complicated, and he makes the point that if Edwin Poots uh, steers the DUP well to the right, this will give Johnson a much bigger headache. He's seen as the likely curious figure, likely seen as a replacement to Arlene Foster. Yeah, well, again, we're leaping many, many hurdles. Uh, the questions this week have been hurdle le leaping. You know, an alliance formed in opposition, uh, an anti-Tory alliance uh, to so that the anti-Tory parties can 
get in next time or electoral reform can happen through various means or an English parliament becomes part of a federal UK. And now, you know, the whole constitutional settlement being reframed through a United Ireland. I can completely see, Jeff, how those forces are at play at the moment, all of them. But if you step back at a moment from all these uh, themes of our questions, what are the big issues um, as Britain perhaps emerges from the nightmare of the pandemic? Levelling up is one, or to put it another way, inequalities of various forms, regional, age, etc. Climate change, massive, and has only just been started. Public services after the era of austerity, posed as being on the centre ground economically. Um, these are huge, huge challenges and will devour the energy of any government. Now, whether on top of that, the system can cope post-Brexit, and by the way, the consequences of both post-Brexit are still massive and not yet to fully play out. All these other changes as well, I don't know, I'm not sure. Maybe those changes are necessary so a government is powerful enough to address that agenda. But if that were to happen, would the Green Party agree with the Labour Party, would the Lib Dems, you know, fully agree? Yeah, on it goes. And so I remain a sceptic of these sweeping changes happening quickly. They might do, but there's already a massive agenda out there to be addressed. And on that joyful note, if it's okay with all of you, we'll come to a stop. My God, we've been going for a long time. I hope you've run, sorted out the masking tape, uh, done some rowing, drunk some whiskey, uh, sorted out your wisteria or whatever it is that you are planting when listening to the podcast. We've got through a lot. I don't think we've cracked everything. We'll have a clearer idea of the political landscape as kind of, well, it will trigger all sorts of things, won't it, these elections, whether the referendum in Scotland, what's the position of Keir Starmer and all the rest of it. So don't forget Get those tickets uh, for King's Place in my boudoir for one last time. History making. Be part of history uh, at the King's Place website. And thank you all so much for listening. If you don't subscribe, do click that subscribe button. Then you'll get it automatically. And everything else can be just relaxing mindfulness as politics continues to remain very, very wild. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.